welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Catherine Garrett. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by C.N. Leach, who was part of my women's history cohort at Sarah Lawrence College, and she is currently working at Calvary Women's Services in D.C., helping actual women find homes and jobs. Hi, C.N. Hi, Katie. <laughs> uh, C.N. and I, when we were in grad school, we were sort of the, the two people working on 18th century women's history projects, so we ended up working together quite a bit. Yeah, what was the title of your thesis again? Redefining Loyalty, Loyalist Women in the American Revolution. <laughs> nice, yes. And then I was working on one about Thomas Jefferson's granddaughter, so we were sort of thematically linked. I should introduce you to one of my other guests, uh, Lizzie. She portrayed a loyalist in um, Colonial Williamsburg uh, oh, as a costumed great. interpreter, and so she's very... Um, it sort of turned her into a loyalist. <laughs> That's fun. She has strong opinions about it. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, so I know that your work right now isn't completely tied to your degree, but have you found that your background in women's history has impacted your career? Yeah, so I think that studying women's history really taught me a lot about storytelling and how stories get told, whose stories get told, mm -hmm. and how we kind of determine moving forward which stories matter. So I do a lot of advocacy work now, and I think that framework of just like knowing that women's stories too often weren't told, weren't heard, um, got buried along the way, uh, really influences how I approach my current work. Uh, I'm a communications manager, and so a lot of my work is trying to help women tell their own stories um, and then using my platform at a nonprofit to amplify their voices. So historians in the future will be able to hear different people's voices. Exactly. <laughs> Changing what frustrated me about studying history. So so you're, you worked on Loyalist Women. What, what drew you to that subject? As an undergrad, I took a couple women's history courses and also took a lot of early American history classes and spent a lot of time studying patriot women. Huh. <laughs> um, you know, as as many there's a lot of books history students do and got to Sarah Lawrence and really started thinking about the other side of the revolution and then more specifically the ideas around who defined freedom and liberty and who got to like claim that um and kind of came to this idea of looking at loyalist women because it really complicates the narrative that many people have learned about the American Revolution. Uh, <laughs> it makes it way more complex when you start to realize that they weren't just like the bad guys of the story. Though specifically with loyalist women, they weren't necessarily just going along with what their husbands wanted. <laughs> mm. um, and then also when you start talking about race within it, it becomes even more complicated because especially for black women in the time period, becoming a loyalist actually uh, was a way of owning freedom and like becoming a freed person. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I visited Canada recently and they have this like whole thing exhibit on like the loyalist uh, enslaved people ended up there. And I'm like, I don't know if I would describe them as like loyal to England so much as like England said you would be free. Like maybe. Yeah. 
I don't know if loyalist is the, the, the descriptor I would put every single time you're describing. Yeah, and group. I think it's why, like, framing it around the idea of, like, how are you defining liberty and freedom? Yes. And I think that's often the framework used to, like, talk about patriots. But it's an interesting one when you, like, flip it. Oh, totally. Yeah, they're not, like, all... Oh, what's his name? That actor in, in The Patriot. Jason Isaacs. Yes. <laughs> so sometimes England was offering the better deal when it came to freedom and liberty. Yeah, it was complicated. Yes. <laughs> uh, what type of sources? You mentioned earlier that it's tough to find women sources and women sources in general and particularly loyalist women. So uh, yeah. what sources did you use? Um, so I looked at a lot of diaries, memoirs, and letters. Um, and then also I looked at a lot of petitions Hmm. Um, which showed a lot of the work related to property claims from loyalist women. So after the revolution, loyalist women trying to claim their exiled husband's property. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it was like one of the few legal exceptions for allowing married women to make legal claims in their own names because they were like, my husband was exiled. It's not my fault. (laughs) Um, And so that provided another lens to look at it through. And women had to be the ones who put those petitions forward. So um, in some cases, you would see like men in their family encouraging them to do it. But the petitions themselves were submitted by women. (laughs) See, and that's an interesting way to use gender as well that people don't always think of. But it's like, oh, if this new U.S. government is taking property from these poor women. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't look so great. (laughs) Yeah, so, um, and, like, just trying to figure out, like, all of the different things. I also looked at um, some, like, land documents from Canada to try and find names of women who had been exiled and ended up Mm -hmm. in Canada. Um, So that was often a search of, like, trying to figure out if I could then find other documents related to them just based on, like, oh, their name shows up here. Like, they landed there. What else can I see about them? What would How would you describe the way that most Americans learn about loyalists? And what do we get right and what do we get wrong? So I was thinking about this question, and the first thing that came to mind was, so my dad is from England, and he just never learned about the American Revolution. <laughs> just, they skipped it. I think this is when they started talking about India. Um, like, and I think that's a really interesting perspective because, like, for a lot of American history students, this is, like, a really big defining part of our education. But globally speaking, <laughs> yeah. it's, like, not actually the biggest of deals. It comes back to this idea of, like, it's complicated as to who decided, like, which side to be on, if they were going to be rebels or remain loyal to the crown. You know, I think the other piece is that too often the narrative about loyalists ends when the war ended. Um, but really, for so many of these people, it influenced the rest of their life. And they became refugees who had to, like, find a new home <laughs> in yeah. places that they'd never been to before. <laughs> That did not necessarily sound appealing when they were like, where am I going? So the letter that we're reading today is by Eliza Johnston. Um, And how did you discover her while you were working on your thesis? Yeah, so I found her when she was already living in Nova Scotia. And when she was 72 years old, she wrote a memoir. I believe she dictated it to one of her grandsons. That was like most of her writings was um, this memoir called Recollections of a Georgia Loyalist. And it was her basically like 
talking about her life. And it was really interesting because she still, even though she had not lived in Georgia for many, many years at that point, she still um, defined herself by that as being a Georgia loyalist, making it clear that like this was a big part of her life. (laughs) A little bit about her. She was born in 1764 in Georgia, just outside of Savannah. Her mother died when she was 10. And she was sent to live with her great aunt in Savannah. And then when she was 15 years old, she married William Martin Johnston. He was 15. 15. He was 25. (laughs) Which like 25 is not that old to be getting married, but 25 year old and a 15 year old is like. (laughs) And he was a captain in the New York Volunteers, which was a loyalist regiment. Like so many others, they were forced to flee their home and spent years moving around to various places before finally ending up in Nova Scotia. Um, So they lived in Savannah. They lived in Charleston, South Carolina, St. Augustine, Florida, Scotland, Jamaica, and then finally settled in Nova Scotia. (laughs) During her life, she gave birth to 10 children. Oh, wow. <laughs> when you get married at 15, you know. You got some time. <laughs> and seven of her children survived past infancy. She spent the majority of her life in Nova Scotia. She landed there in 1806 and spent the rest of her life living there until she died uh, in 1848. It's super cool that she has a memoir. I think uh, a lot of times when I'm trying to find more IDs about some of these women who wrote these letters, there's very little that you can find. But then there's this (laughs) memoir that tells you like beat by beat what's going on in her life is so fascinating. Yeah, I love the fact that she, the interesting thing is she didn't leave a ton of letters from most of her life, but she did feel the need to like document it later. (laughs) Like she was in her 70s. And she's like, no, you know what, this is a story that needs to be told, like I'm doing it. (laughs) To to get into the context of the specific letter that we're going to be looking into today. It is a letter that Eliza wrote to her husband in 1784. So this is very, very shortly after sort of the end of the American Revolution. So she there, her whole courtship and early marriage was like, during the Revolutionary War and like her husband is a loyalist he's fighting in the war and she's moving from all these different places as things seem to be going well from times they're not well uh at other times so I can it's a pretty exciting youth frankly um (laughs) but so at the time she's writing this letter uh she's 19 years old she is seven months pregnant at the time that she's writing this letter, uh, and she's already the mother of two at this point. William, her husband, is as we 10 years older, so he's about 29 <laughs> at this time, and she's writing from St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, they had for a while been living in Charleston, South Carolina, but they had to evacuate the city in 1782 for war reasons <laughs> uh, the victory of the American <laughs> Revolution reasons uh, so they fled to Florida which was not technically part of the, the colonies yet it wasn't an American colony so she was in a, a British colony again and she'd been living there for a, a little more than a year while her husband has been fighting in the war and has been traveling a lot she's been spending a lot of time living with her father-in-law so at this point she's living in her father-in-law with her father-in-law in St. Augustine, which she really likes St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, when, when you read her memoir, she has very nice things to say about that time in her life. Basically, what happened is after the battles and the fighting of the American Revolution are done, um, her husband actually joined them in St. Augustine in 1783 very briefly, but his father thought, well, 
now that the war's over, you're not a soldier anymore. You actually have to get your life together. <laughs> um, and sent him almost immediately to Edinburgh, Scotland to study medicine because he wanted him to be a doctor. So again, she got married during a war. She, her husband's away constantly. She hardly ever sees him. And then he's finally with her and the war is over and he's still alive. And then he's immediately sent away. So this is the first letter that she's written after she's received the first letter saying that he's arrived safely overseas. So he's just left at, after kind of a disappointingly short interval of him actually living with her and the children. So that's the context of her writing this letter. I also want to point out she is seven months pregnant <laughs> and he's just gone again. <laughs> so uh, that I think should set up a little bit of the emotions, <laughs> the context of what's going on. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and read the letter. Elizabeth Lichtenstein Johnston to William Martin Johnston, St. Augustine, January 15th, 1784. My dearest husband, Yesterday I had the unspeakable pleasure of receiving yours by the Brig Caroline. It was doubly satisfactory as I was anxious to hear of your safe arrival. You have sailed in a bad season of the year. Let me pour forth my gratitude and thanks to my creator for the preservation of my husband and the happy recovery of my darling daughter. Andrew is quite well. Andrew's her oldest son. <laughs> I am somewhat surprised at your expecting such an infant should know his letters, who is not three years old yet, and I think it full time a twelve month hence to begin him. Many sensible people will tell you tis not right to stuff a child with learning before his mind had had time to expand. I suppose your short arrival in the city prevented your writing more fully. I wished much to hear whether you were better of that cruel disorder which distressed you so much when here. I am not just now in any particular want of money. And as your father is still in suspense what his next move will be, I shall not draw for any until we are better settled. Probably if your father disposes of his negroes, he may go to Scotland, though I have my fears on that head, as from the flattering accounts the loyalists there give of their large crops of indigo, he seems to have an idea of Jamaica. I should be distressed to take my children to so very unhealthy a place. Your father is greatly surprised at your remaining in London, as your studies might be prosecuted with more success in Edinburgh, and I fear he thinks your reasons not the best for determining as you have done. I cannot write my father at present, but an opportunity will offer shortly by which I shall write him. I'm surprised he did not send the children toys as he promised them. As for myself, I want nothing. In your absence, dress has no charms for me. I have neither spirits nor inclination to take part in any amusements. I have received all the attention from your family that I could possibly wish for. Mrs. Wood not accepted, who has paid me more attention than I had reason to expect after the cruel manner in which you behaved to her. I am yours truly, Eliza Johnston. Okay. <laughs> I just love her sass. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much sass in this letter. I feel like it's very dry, but she is making her feelings known. <laughs> so known. In your words... Tell me what's going on in this letter. <laughs> so, I mean, she's been left alone by her husband again. <laughs> she, and, and this is a theme that comes up in a lot of her letters, is she's always commenting on the reasons why he doesn't write more. Um, and there's always a reason for it. It's either, you know, like, oh, it must have been the weather, or it must have been the timing of the ships, 
or oh, you just must have written more letters and I haven't received them yet. I think that's my favorite. She's like, I know you've written more letters and I will. I look forward to receiving them in the future. <laughs> and it's just like such, it's such a snarky approach to it. Like she's disappointed, but rather than saying like, oh, I'm so disappointed about it. She's like, oh, you're going to do better. I know you have done better. I will keep my eye out for the post. <laughs> See, and what 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 strikes me about that is because there's so many of these relationships. It was very normal for these there to be these big age gaps in relationships back yeah. then. But what that sometimes turns into is this kind of weird sort of. It's still a gender sort of role that the husband's supposed to be the master of the house or whatever. But there really was this kind of like fatherly aspect to sometimes these relationships when somebody's 25 and they're married to a 15 year old, right? <laughs> and so like sometimes when I'm reading these women's letters back and forth with their husbands, their husband really is lecturing them like a father like telling them to write better and all that so it's so fun to get a letter like she's much younger than her husband she's still a teenager and she's like no <laughs> she's like you should be writing me more I suppose that you only wrote me so short a letter because you had just arrived in the city and so like she's she's not actually yelling at them she's still yeah. like playing her role right like she's still being the wife but she's she's making her point yeah Nevertheless, <laughs> she's like doing it very much within the expectations on her of she is being a good wife. She is being a good mother. She's fulfilling all of those like womanly duties and roles that she's supposed to be doing. But like, she's not always happy about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so her little bit where she's like, I'm surprised that you should think that your son, who's not yet three years old, should know his letters. That's just such a nice little scolding. Tis not right to stuff a child with learning. When I look at that line, my question is like, is she questioning if he knows how old his child is? <laughs> like, have you been gone so long that you don't remember that he is still very young? <laughs> yeah, he's just a baby. Like, of course he's not reading yet, obviously. <laughs> I think the section about her father deciding what to do next is interesting. Basically, they moved to St. Augustine and she really likes it there. But Great Britain, like, as part of the peace treaty, <laughs> gives Florida back to Spain. <laughs> so once again, <laughs> uh, all of their plans have to change. They're colonists. They want to live in a British colony. They were doing that in America. <laughs> they were in South Carolina. They go to Florida as an American colony or as a British colony. And then, oh, they've got to move again. But then they, they have options. Like, yeah. there's all sorts of English colonies. He's all over the place. So it's like, well, do we go to Canada? Do we go to Jamaica? Do we go to the, like, you know, the West Indies? Yeah, um, so many so many choices, but all of them British colonies. Yeah, the sun never sets on the British Empire, I guess. <laughs> At least not back then. I do think it's interesting that she, her, she doesn't want to go to Jamaica because she says it's an unhealthy place, which... She's right in that, I think they call it seasoning when you would arrive in the West Indies. But if, mm -hmm. you, if, you, if you were able to live there for a year and you'd get your fever and survive it, then you were okay. But a lot of people die that first year. I think she left one of her, like her oldest daughter, I think she left her in England when they went to Jamaica because really? she wasn't, she didn't want to risk her daughter's life. Um, yeah. by going to Jamaica. So she left her to be educated in England while they went to Jamaica. I do wonder if the fact that she's coming from Georgia, which was a slaveholding state, and clearly her father-in-law also owned slaves. There was a, these are plantation owners yep. with 
a large amount of slaves moving to a place where it's a majority black country, even though it's there's still very much white colonists are in power and all of that. But there are free black people in Jamaica and there's yeah. there are <laughs> and the, the white people are vastly outnumbered in Jamaica. And I feel like that is something that would be of concern to somebody like Elizabeth. Yeah, she her father was also a slave owner. And something interesting on that is in her memoirs, she kind of whitewashes things and just like skims over the whole slavery thing. Like, we're not we don't really want to talk about it too much. So like, by the time she was older, she knew that that was not okay. Um, But very much a part of her childhood and her early adult life. (laughs) Because in Canada, there were more free black people, at least in in Nova Scotia. So all of a sudden, it's a different society that she's moving into. Exactly. And she adapted and learned and was like, oh, let's not talk about this part of my past. They do end up actually going to England next. They don't go to Jamaica right away. They go to England. And and there's kind of a cute story when she arrives in London, because they were expecting, I think that at that point, William had gone to Edinburgh and was getting settled, but they had arrived in London. She wrote, she described it. She said, as we had never before been in a place of such bustle and stir, we were rather alarmed and could not sleep. To add to our fears, suddenly about midnight, a female servant with a candle abruptly opened the door and asked if Captain Johnston's lady was there. Why? What do you want? I'm Mrs. Johnston, I answered, hardly knowing what I said. With perfect composure, she replied, then you can make room for the captain. <laughs> and I guess he shows up in the middle of the night because he found out that they had arrived there and he came back to to London to, to meet with his family. I thought that was cute. So cute. I think <laughs> that is also like, she's giving him, you know, a bit of a hard time through this letter, but I think they really did care for each other. And like, even though she didn't always agree with what he was doing or where he wanted to move, like she deeply cared for him and like I think it was mutual like I think he also really loved her <laughs> to, to let her sort of speak to him that way that she felt comfortable enough yeah. to sort of tease him and all of that I think is actually again I read a lot of letters and not all of these relationships are that healthy so <laughs> this one uh comes across a little bit better at least with that oh I like uh, her little dramatic bit about in your absence dress has no charms for me and like she really it's like throughout the whole letter she's like really like laying it on that like i don't i don't need anything with you gone it's fine (laughs) (laughs) and like following the like in your absence dress has no charms for me she says like i have neither spirits nor inclination to take part in any amusements like she's 19 and she's very serious she doesn't need those amusements not while her husband's gone yeah and it's sort of like i could be dressing up and going out to parties but i'm not because <laughs> i'm here alone with our two children with our kids and your father-in-law <laughs> and your father <laughs> i can i can feel that energy emanating across 200 years <laughs> and oh and that little bit at the end where she says mrs wood i don't know who mrs wood is do you know who mrs wood is i do not <laughs> i looked i was trying to like find my old notes to see if i had figured it out i do not know who this is because <laughs> it comes up in more than one letter so 
something happened before yeah. <laughs> he left St. Augustine between William Johnston and Mrs. Wood, where she has, after the cruel manner in which she behaved to her, is the way that uh, Eliza describes it. And then in another letter, she says, Mrs. Wood had, has accompanied us and is ready to lie in. So I imagine she's pregnant as well. Remember my request in a former letter and let her not, I beseech you, be shocked in her present situation by any unkind behavior of yours. But meet her, my love, as if nothing had passed. I want to know what passed so nothing. badly. <laughs> I, I, It's the frustrating part about her letters is that because she didn't, so many of her letters didn't survive and we've mm. only got a few of them. There are like these big holes that I'm like, what happened? <laughs> With Eliza Johnston, you have to rely on this memoir that she wrote when she was 72 about right. her t- her younger years. And you're like, okay, clearly, you know, like, things might be a little different in her recollections than they were and how they initially happened. And, like, she skips over some of these moments that I'm like, but tell me more. <laughs> and, I'll, I'm like, and she's saying it to her grandson, as you say, and that's going to flavor oh, the, yes. the stories that you tell as well. <laughs> another thing that's kind of funny is sometimes like i'll be trying to find a historical fact in these letters right and i'll be trying to like figure out where somebody moved and it'll be like some big thing of like well did they go to this college or did they move at this time and i'll find some letter that tells me like well i know they got sick in like 1765 (laughs) and like i know that her knee was really bad and i'll just know these like insane little details about somebody's life but i don't know the big thing where i'm like but i can't tell you where they moved i can't tell you like how old they are but i can tell you like they really hated like cabbage like it's just funny well they didn't need to write about big details in their letters everybody knew those things but you didn't necessarily know if your neighbor had gotten over the cold she had or had you know successfully had her child or things like that (laughs) that's what matters (laughs) i just love this letter it's like sure it's sweet it gives you definitely a little slice of life of what is actually like a very exciting situation that she's in like rather precarious and dramatic yeah (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, there's so many unknowns, and she knows that they're unknowns. She's like, I don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, We might go here. We might go here. I don't really know. And, like, she seems like she's just going with it. Like, Like, she seems pretty confident that she's going to be okay wherever they end up. She she doesn't want to go to Jamaica. (laughs) But, like... I mean, her husband made it through the war safe. I mean, she is 19. I think there's like a little bit of sort of like confidence that comes along with that, even at this more dangerous time. Yeah. And like most of her, I mean, most of her life, she was like, she was 12 when the Declaration of Independence was signed. So like most of her older life at this point has been living through war. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And fleeing from war. Yeah, so that brings us to, like, so the Loyalists really were, like, they went from, in a lot of cases, like, she was from a fairly wealthy family. This is a slaveholding family. This is, like, she's kind of the upper gentry crust. Yeah. So she goes, and English citizen, like, sort of proud of that, to, like, go from that to being oppressed class isn't the right word for it. But, like, to be sort of a refugee to the switch um, is a huge change it's a really interesting sort of situation to find oneself in did you see when you were studying loyalist women like how did people handle this so i think a lot of it is this like this identity as a loyalist followed them so like even though they were living in other colonies 
creating new lives in other places, this, like, this is a really defining moment in their lives, which (laughs) makes sense if you have to flee your home and leave everything you know. That's going to be a moment that kind of defines a lot about who you are. It's interesting because they end up in so many different types of places, like the women who end up in Jamaica and the women who end up in Nova Scotia. (laughs) Yeah. So completely different. (laughs) Um, Or the ones who, like, go back to England. It all ends very differently, but they all come from the starting point of deciding to remain loyal to the crown for whatever reason. (laughs) Or the ones who get left behind by their husbands when they're exiled and try and claim their property. Those are some other fun ones that I really enjoyed. (laughs) this idea like oh did they actually have their own ideas or were they just going along with their husbands (laughs) and it's like no they they had thoughts of their own like yes it was influenced by them being women in this time period but they still had ideas thoughts political beliefs that like did not always line up with their husbands often it was similar but I mean Today, you still see similar things with marriages. Like, you tend to align yourself with people who have similar beliefs as you. So it's not <laughs> yeah. shocking if they, if their husband is a loyalist and they also are a loyalist. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that it is also true that the line between patriot and loyalist could be a little muddy. Um, and particularly because these, like, so many of these people are of the same social class and are really mixing together quite a bit. I think when I was doing research about George Washington, the fact that he he was obviously very strongly <laughs> for independence. Like, I'm not going to say he was not strongly for independence, but his entire social circle was British, like the yeah. British governor. And a lot of his friends were loyalist. His son's tutor was loyalist. His son's entire social circle was like the hardcore Maryland loyalists. And so imagine like, well, it's not his, it's his stepson everyone he's spent everyone he's playing cards with everyone he's like hanging out with his entire youth social group are all hardcore loyalists to the extent that they got like kicked out of maryland but like and they're hanging out with george washington's ward the son essentially so they're all interacting on more of a basis than i think that sometimes we imagine it yeah i think that's definitely the case i think Looking back, it's easy to be like, oh, they were patriots, they were loyalists. And in reality, it was like, no, it was a lot less clear. And a lot of times people didn't necessarily, weren't necessarily getting involved to begin with. Uh, (laughs) They were like, I'm just doing my thing. I've got my life. And then like the war forced them to make decisions when it impacted their daily life in their town or their city. (laughs) I think that a lot of the case, especially like in Southern colonies, it took longer for those divisions to like take place when the war finally made it to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it hits them at, right at the end of the war and it's brutal down yeah. south. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's like the thing is like people were still living their lives while all of this was happening. Like, I mean, Eliza had three children <laughs> yeah. at the end of it. It's more complicated than you ever think. So much things. more complicated. <laughs> like, I feel like when I started researching for my thesis, I was like, oh, we're going to look at the other side of this. Like, I've studied Patriots. Let's see what the other side says. And it very quickly was like, oh, wow, this is messy. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that was like the big takeaway. And, you know, I think that's the the theme of 
history is it's really messy <laughs> it's messy and all of these people okay it's like oh they're fighting the american revolution they're also having all sorts of kids alexander <laughs> hamilton got married everybody's having kids everybody's having ma- lots of babies there's, which there's, i have so many questions about like how is all of this happening at once and like <laughs> you don't know if you're ever gonna see a person again and like, yeah these winter encampments Everybody was partying. <laughs> there were the, the, the camp follower women, all sorts of this stuff. Yeah. There were women all over the place. <laughs> this is not just this, like, poor men roughing it out in no. the cold. The American Revolution was much hornier than you may have expected. <laughs> That's a line. <laughs> a letter like this that is talking about family and is talking about just sort of, like, the logistical struggles of warfare is even though this is just like a sort of small insignificant seemingly little letter it does tell you stuff about the revolution it really does <laughs> yeah. well cn this was a delightful conversation thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast thank you for inviting me i've missed talking history with you <laughs> um 18th century women is where it's at always a good time <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, As for my listeners, I will provide some show notes with links to some further reading if you're interested in finding more about Elizabeth or any of the other quotes that we ended up getting to in the episode. And as ever, I am your most obedient and humble servant. Thank you very much. 